Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. Um, if you have a Bible, you can open it. If you don't, the text will be on the screen. We're going through 2 Corinthians, a book written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Corinth, um, which was a, a metropolitan city, an ancient city. You can still visit the city of Corinth today um, in, on the uh, Asian peninsula there, and uh, there are still ruins of uh, ancient, ancient uh, edifices to where uh, the goddess Diana was worshipped and uh, where ancient pagan worship practices took place. And so um, in many ways, this is a very real uh, letter that we're studying, a, a letter that uh, speaks even into our own age and our own day. And so we're in chapter 4. Uh, we've been going verse by verse through the chapters, and we've gotten to chapter 4. Now, chapter 4 introduces us to some interesting dynamics in terms of ministry philosophy. And I want to begin by, by, by saying a few preliminary thoughts. So we could quite easily argue that the reason the church exists, you know, we could we could kind of have a, a long debate. You know, why does the church exist? Does it exist for worship? Does it exist for mission? Does it exist for discipleship? Does it exist for fellowship? And you could argue for hours, and you, I think you could boil it down to probably three or four things. And, and in that list of three or four things, why does the church exist? Surely there has to be somewhere near the top to see unbelievers become believers. And surely the church exists to see non-Christians become Christians turn to Christ. And if that is in our kind of top list of priorities, then the next important question is, well, then how do we go about ensuring that that actually happens? What do we do? How do we give ourselves to that? What do, what do we do as a church? What should we practice? How should we live? What is our mandate to make that happen, if that is that important? What strategies do we employ? What, what kind of efforts do we get involved in in order to see non-churched people come to faith in Christ? Now, that's been on the front end of many churches over the last 40 years, this kind of idea of how do we see uh, the church bridge the gap between where the church lives and how we do church and where the world is. How do we do that successfully? And in the process, uh, there have been some interesting strategies that have been developed. Um, one of the strategies is that we as the church need to see people outside of the church as a consumer that needs to be reached. You know, one of the strategies is that we employ business strategy. We employ a marketing strategy. And the marketing strategy, the key to any marketing program is that the consumer must be pleased. The consumer is always right, and the consumer must be reached. And so many churches took on what we call a kind of seeker-sensitive approach to ministry. So we kind of dumb down things that would be offensive, right? We don't really talk about things that are difficult, like sin, uh, and we don't talk about politics in church, and we don't talk about important things like heaven and hell. You know, we, we try and stay away from those things. Why? Because we want people to feel comfortable when they come to church. And so the seeker-sensitive approach 
Or we could just be crass and we could call it, you know, light entertainment, uh, you know, where, where we keep people engaged and, and we entertain people. And, and kind of here's the goal. The goal is that we need to show them that Christians are just human beings just like them, right? And if we can show them that we're just like them, which, by the way, is philosophically very flawed, um, then if we can show them that we're just like them, then they'll, they'll like our church. That's the, that's the thinking. Uh, and there are many, many flaws with that, as we will see as we go. Another approach is, is, is that actually, well, what people need is, is to be lifted up. You know, we, we're living in such a dark age, such a sad time, and actually people in the world are, are quite sad, and they're looking to belong. And so uh, the, the, the context then is to, well, actually, you don't need to believe what we believe. You can first belong. You know, first belong, then believe. And so just come as you are. Come as you are. And, and there's a little bit of truth in that. There's a little bit of, of, of life in that. But at the same time, uh, the problem is that uh, we, we, we end up with a very messy church. And all that we ever hear about is kind of pop psychology, kind of feel-good sermons, and uh, kind of pep talks on how to find your purpose and live a successful life. That's not helpful either, because we're not really presenting Christ in all of his fullness. And another approach is, uh, is of more recent times is that the unbelieving world is a critic, uh, a savvy critic and a savvy critic that needs to be appeased. And so uh, all that we do in ministry then is that we have to talk about um, identity politics. You know, we have to talk about current issues. We have to talk about identity politics. We need to talk about intersectionality. We need to preach messages about empowering the marginalized, right? We, we need to talk about liberating the oppressed. And, and if we're not doing that, then we're isolationists. We're kind of, we have no heart for social justice. And so the critic is not appeased. Now, all of these approaches have small, my emphasis on small, small threads of truth. Small threads of truth. And I think instead of being seeker-sensitive, we just need to be sensible. We need to be a church that's sensible. We, we do have children's ministry. We do have nice facilities. We have comfortable seats, I hope. We have good coffee. We, we do want to create an environment that is normal. You know, we, we, we're normal people, and we do want people to see that we're normal people. But at the same time, is that what reaches them? No. Why? Because there are better places and better venues you could go to where you feel comfortable and at home, and you get your ego stroked, or you get a nice pep talk, right? All of those strategies are not actually gospel presentations. And so as we get to today's text, the question we're going to be asking is, how is it that people become Christians? Is it, is it that we have to be super cool, uh, or is it that we have to be, uh, appease the critics, or, or, or is it an apologetic prowess, or is it that we've got to be smarter and we've got to outwit? What is the strategy? And so let's read the text, and we're going to see Paul's strategy for reaching the lost. So here we go. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, 
It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul's enemies, as we've noted in chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul has enemies, the, the author of this, that is enemies, and the enemies have been ruthless. They've been ruthless and relentless. They've accused him of being double-minded. Remember his travel plans? They've accused him of being under God's judgment because he's suffering. And now they're accusing him of being a fraudulent apostle. And part of the reason for accusing him of being a fraudulent apostle is because they're seeing that actually the message he's preaching isn't popular. And not only is it not popular, but many, most people in Corinth are rejecting. So although there is a church in Corinth, most people are rejecting his message. And so all of this negative press and all of this difficulty of ministry, circumstances, you, you can, it can start to really get you down. And, and Paul is actually quite vulnerable in this opening verse. Have a look at verse 1 again. He says, therefore, having this ministry, this faithful ministry, this ministry by the mercy of God, he says we do not lose heart. Now, all commentators agree that the grammar of this phrase indicates that he is on the verge of losing heart. It's quite interesting. But how does he solve that? How does he solve the reality of all this negative press, of all of this difficult ministry, that, that, that people aren't accepting his message, that people are rejecting his apostolic input, and he says to them, listen, this is how we're going to overcome it. We're going to overcome the rejection, and we're going to overcome the disapproval by remembering that we have this ministry by the mercy of God. Not by merit, not, this isn't a money-making scheme. No, no, this is a divine initiative. This is God broke into my life. Paul's remembering God broke into my life. God revealed himself to me. God took me from being an enemy of the church and made me an apostle to the church. I have this ministry by the mercy of God. And for that very reason, I do not lose heart. Although I have many reasons for losing heart. Ministry is tough. We don't often see the fruit from our labors. We can pour our lives into people and they just, they just leave. We can spend hours and hours. We can, we can give and give and we can, we can do our utmost. And, and sometimes we don't see anything. And it's easy to lose heart. And Paul's saying, yeah, in spite of many rejecting the gospel, he says, I do not lose heart in the gospel because it's the same gospel that actually is bringing about salvation. There is no other plan. Paul's not about to change his plan. Paul is not going to change his strategy because it's hard, because it's difficult, because he's on the verge of losing heart. He doesn't say, let's manipulate the message. Let's adjust the strategy. No, Paul says here that he fights discouragement 
Firstly, by remembering the mercy of God that put him into ministry in the first place. And secondly, by recalling to himself that salvation is actually a work of God. That actually it's God's business to save and to reach unbelievers. So, how's he going to show this to us? Well, we're just going to run through a couple of things. First, he's going to show us the prognosis or the problem. So here's the problem or the prognosis of the situation. The part of the problem is the old creation. The first thing that Paul describes here is the condition of people outside of Christ. And it's quite alarming. He says it in this way in verse 3 and 4. He speaks of the, 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 the unbeliever, the, the non-Christian. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing, seeing, so veil, the veil, what's the veil doing? It's, it's stopping them from seeing, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So here's the prognosis. Paul's saying, well, this is the difficulty of every ministry, of every church, of every Christian throughout the ages, and that is that we're dealing with people who don't believe in Jesus Christ, and the reason they don't believe in Jesus Christ is because they are blinded. They're, they're blinded to what? To the glory of Jesus to the glory of Jesus. They, they can't see the glory of Christ. And Paul says that the reason for this is that their minds have been darkened. There is a darkening of the mind, and Paul refers to this as to the agent by means of which this came, and that is the God of this world. Now, notice he doesn't use the, the phrase Yahweh. It's not Yahweh. It's not God, the author and creator of all life. No, no. It's lowercase g, the God of this world, small g, which is a reference to Satan. This is how Paul speaks of the fallen creation, the old creation. And so Paul is saying that the God of this world, and we, we talk like that sometimes in normal everyday life, you know, we talk about money being the ruler of the world or greed, you know, greed is the God of the world. So Paul's using language like this, and he says the God of this world, and he's thinking Satan, and he's referencing the fall of man in the beginning where Adam and Eve were in the garden, and Satan came, and he deceived them, and Adam and Eve sinned, and they fell, and together with their fall, all humanity fell. And we were all plunged into darkness because God had said, if you eat and if you listen to, 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 to the serpent, you will surely die. And they, did. they didn't die physically, but they died spiritually. There was a darkness, a spiritual death that came upon humanity. And so Paul's picking up on that narrative from Genesis. And he says, the God of this world, the serpent, Satan, blinded the minds of the unbelieving. It, it's part of the fallen nature of man. And interestingly, Paul uses the same language in chapter 3 earlier on, the previous chapter, to speak about the Israelites in Moses' day. The Israelites and the Jews up to this day in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 15, he says, a veil lies over their heart. So now we see that this darkness or this veil or this blindness is both in the mind and in the heart. In other words, the entirety of human nature is fallen. There is a depravity 
upon all of mankind that, that, that renders us unable to see the glory, the glory of Christ. So this is the prognosis. And it's very important that we have an accurate prognosis. You know, if you go to the doctor, you need an accurate prognosis so that you can get an accurate solution. You don't want to be treated for something that you don't have, right? So it's important that we understand the human problem. The human problem is that we don't have uh, problems only outside. Isn't Isn't that what our world loves to do? We like to blame everyone else for our problems. The biggest problem with the world. Someone once wrote, I think it was G.K. Chesterton who lived, he was a minister in in London, and uh, and it was during the World War, and someone wrote to the newspaper and said, what's wrong with the world? And he replied, and G.K. Chesterton in the newspaper, he replied, and he just said, I am. G.K. Chesterton. Because that is the reality. The problems aren't outside. The problems aren't out there. The problem's in here. That's what's wrong with the world is that we are a fallen, sinful people. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 3, he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. So the prognosis is is pretty sad, but but it's important we get it right so that we get the solution right, right? So, so, So to summarize, the nature of unbelief is spiritual blindness. The reason they're unbelieving is because of a blindness which is traced back to the fall. The God of this world deceived our forefathers, our our ancestors, Adam and Eve, and through them all humanity has fallen. And this is the problem in the world. They're blind to glory. They're blind to the glory of Jesus. And and I've been in ministry for 25 years, and and I can testify this is true. Wonderful people. We're not saying they're not nice people. No, no. Not at all. We're just saying that there's a spiritual blindness. People can look directly at the glory of Christ. People can look directly at the gospel of Jesus, and they see nothing of value. Nothing. Jesus looks foolish to them. He looks like a mythical figure or just simply boring. And you know what? It's not because they lack evidence. There is so much evidence to the, to the historicity of Christianity, it's, it's incredible. It's not that they lack evidence. What they lack is eyes to see. Eyes to see the evidence and interpret it properly. Again, the problem of the prognosis is that they're blind to any other glory than their own. So, I needed to lay that foundation. So here's the question then. How can the blindness to the glory of Jesus be removed? How can it be removed? What's what's the solution to the old creation problem? Is it fancy strategies? Is it marketing prowess? What are we going to do? Well, Paul tells us the solution. The solution to the old creation problem is that we need a new creation. And he explains it this way in verse 6, and it is genius language. He says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. What's he referencing? Again, Genesis. So that's why I think God of this world is a reference to Genesis 3, whereas now God, capital G, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. Genesis 1 verse 1, God spoke the creation into being. 
What's he doing? He's referencing the God of creation and how creation came about. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Now, look at this. He says, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, the solution to this condition of spiritual blindness is for God to speak forth light and life where there was no life and light. The, the, the parallel here is between God's initiative in creation and God's initiative in salvation. Unless God acts, there is no creation and unless God acts, there is no salvation. Clearly, that's the parallel he's creating. When, when God said, let there be light, when God said, let there be light, the universe had no way of not complying. The light and the matter and the space could do nothing but perfectly obey God's call. I don't know in your home, but in our home, when our kids were growing up, uh, around bath time, you know, you'd run the bath and the kids would be playing either in the lounge or the room or in the garden, and you'd go, okay, guys, it's bath time, come and bath. And did they obey the call? No. And not only was it like not obeyed, it was like resisted. Where does that come from? And so we called, we would call, and we would call, and eventually about on the third or the fourth call, but by the way, it's not good parenting, but anyway, uh, on the fifth or fifth call, and I'm counting to three, and then I'm counting to three again, and then I'm counting to three again, you know how it goes. Then they come eventually, but it's resisted, it's resisted. And here's the thing, God, when God speaks, when God calls, you cannot resist, The, the same, Paul's showing us here that the same God who created light in the beginning does the same thing to human hearts. Does the same, he did the same thing for us. This is the only reason why we're Christians. It's the only reason why we can sing and worship God because we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And how did that happen? But it happened when God said, let there be light in our hearts. Let the light shine out of darkness. He has shone in our hearts. That's where the problem was. Our hearts have fallen and our heart needed to be made new. Which is why we become new creations. Because the old creation had a problem with it. It was fallen. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the next chapter, he says this in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He's a new creation. The, the conversion of a sinner to faith in Christ is just as much a miracle as the original creation where God speaks life. And I'm so grateful he did that. I'm so grateful that salvation belongs to the Lord because imagine if it belonged to us we would mess it up properly. So, my final point is, 
If then, if the world's problem, if our problem used to be that we were blind to glory, and if regeneration, the new creation, is something that only God can do, then what is it that we do? <laughs> is this even something that we should have in our priority list of why we exist as a church? And the answer is yes. And here's how it works. Because in verse 5, what does Paul say? He says this, the means is you and I and the gospel. He says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, not our marketing strategies, not our cool hip churches, not our modified gospel message to make people feel like consumers and comfortable. No, no, we do not proclaim ourselves. What we proclaim is Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So he's not saying we got nothing to do with it. Actually, this is incredible. We do have something to do with it, and we're just simply the means of grace. We're just simply the means of grace. And so to answer the question, what should we do to help people become Christians, the answer is we need to share with them the gospel. Tell them about the good news of Jesus from a heart of love and a life of service. Let's not forget that, because that matters. It's not, it's not just words, it's word and deeds. And if we proclaim the gospel, it's not our job to convince them. It's God's job. Our job is to get the gospel to their ears. It's God's job to get the gospel to their hearts. He's the one who opens the blind eyes. And, and if people reject our message, and if we call and they don't come, and if we call and they don't come, well, what, what do we do? Do we give up? No, we never give up. We just keep calling. We keep calling and we trust that God at some point would open their eyes. But what we don't do is change the message. Look at verse 2 and 3. He says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. The word they tamper is an ancient word in the Greek that was used for the wine merchants. The wine merchants in Corinth were, were, were cheats. They would water down the wine in order to make it stretch further and sell more. It's the same word he uses, to water down, to tamper with God's word. We don't do that. No, we trust God with the results. And why would people do that? Well, because we want to be liked, right? We want to be liked. We want people to think well of us. And so we, we feel the pressure to make, make our ministries grow, make our churches grow. And, and, and so we resort to techniques and tricks and entertainment. But Paul says there are disgraceful, underhanded ways. So let me conclude. It is God's job to open the eyes of the blind, to see the truth and the glory of Christ. But he does it by sending us. Isn't that incredible? Our part is the outward call. We do the outward call. We tell people about Jesus. We, we serve them and we love on them. We tell people about Jesus and then we trust that God does the inward call, that, that he gives them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So whatever you do, don't stop. Don't stop telling. Don't stop loving. Don't stop serving. 
You might go, oh, okay, well then only God can do it. I mustn't do anything. No, no. Just because you can't cause the new birth doesn't mean you don't stop telling the gospel. It's kind of like, well, I can't make electricity, so I'm not going to flick the switch. No, no. Keep flicking the switch, right? Just because you can't make fire doesn't mean you don't stop. Doesn't mean you stop striking matches, right? You strike the match. It, it, it's it's God's work to make it come alive. Let me close by saying, this is my testimony, and I know that every one of you who who look into the face of Jesus Christ and you see the glory of God. This morning, let's just be aware of what it, what it took. You, you didn't turn over a new leaf. <laughs> you didn't just suddenly come to your senses. Actually, what happened was a miracle, a miracle of sovereign grace where God shone the light of the glory of Christ into your heart. I once was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I'm found. That's our story. Saved. We are sinners. Saved by sovereign grace. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your marvelous grace. We don't deserve it. If it were not for your initiative, if it were not for your sovereign initiative, if you didn't say, let there be light in our hearts, we would still be lost, would still be in darkness. Oh, Lord, thank you that, that we can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is our greatest treasure Only as we behold the Lord Jesus do we see love, love personified. Only as we behold Jesus Christ do we see forgiveness given freely. As we behold Jesus Christ, we see life eternal. We see meaning and purpose. And so may we never stray from telling this ancient story, this good news gospel, And then may we trust you to get it to their hearts, Lord. Help us to take the word and the message to the ears of the people. Help us to love on people, to serve people. But Lord, we never want to tamper with your word. We never want to adjust or water down the gospel. We want people to hear the shepherd's voice. And for there to be life and light where there was once darkness. Lord, we thank you for our salvation. We are so grateful. And we also want to pray for the salvation of our friends and families. We pray that you would speak. You would declare. You would proclaim as we speak that you, your voice, would be under our voice. Saying, let there be a light. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.